אלי, אלי, שלא ייגמר לעולם, החול והים, רשרוש על המים, ברק השמיים, תפילת של אדם, החול והים, רשרוש של המים. ברק השמיים, תפילת של אדם. There are stars whose radiance is visible on Earth, though they have long been extinct. There are people whose brilliance continues to light the world, even though they are no longer among the living. These lights are particularly bright when the night is dark. They light the way for humankind. If you're looking for the prettiest kibbutz in Israel, you can't do much better than kibbutz Dotiam. It sits just south of the ancient port of Caesarea, right on the Mediterranean Sea, with a long beach, green fields, cozy houses with red roofs. It began in 1936 as a place in which to secretly land Jews being smuggled from Europe to Palestine, the Aliyah Bet immigrants I talked about a couple episodes ago. In 1941 came to the kibbutz a 20-year-old woman from Hungary who had immigrated to Palestine legally a couple years before and had been training in agriculture. She was intelligent, energetic, and passionate, an accomplished writer and poet. She wrote what you just heard about the radiant stars, one of her most famous. She arrived full of the romance of living her dream in the land of Israel, young and with her whole life ahead of her. But there was a war in Europe, and she felt called to join it. In doing so, she will become the iconic hero in this whole epic story of Israel, someone who embodies the highest ideals of Israel, Zionism, and Judaism all at once. Her story, and those of her fellow fighters, does much to reveal the human face of Zionism. Within everything we've been talking about, all the politics and the strategizing and the leaders and the British are the humble men and women who became Lionhearts, who gave meaning to a movement that created the Jewish state. It's just not possible to know the Israeli story without knowing this story, of the parachutists from Palestine, of Hannah Shenish and her incredibly brave companions. Hannah Shenish was born in 1921 in Hungary. We know a lot about her life, in good part because she kept a diary from the age of 13. Her family was well off and thoroughly assimilated, and from an early age, Hannah had not much need for a strong Jewish identity or for Zionism. She wanted to be a writer. Life was good. But as she came of age in the 1930s, the rise of the Nazis in Germany fueled anti-Semitism in Hungary. Repressive laws began passing, and even in school, Hannah found that being a Jew excluded her from fulfilling her talents and ambitions. She realized how swiftly things could change, and how the simple fact of her being a Jew would now suddenly alter the course of what she could become in Hungary. In May 1937, she wrote about it. Reading from Hannah's diary today is my good friend and special guest, Ariella Liefer. To my way of thinking, 
you have to be someone exceptional to fight anti-Semitism, which is the most difficult kind of fight. Only now am I beginning to see what it really means to be a Jew in Christian society. But I don't mind at all. It is because we have to struggle, because it is more difficult for us to reach our goal that we develop outstanding qualities. Over the next year and a half, Hannah descended into an intense period of introspection. By the age of 17, she emerged as a distinctly proud Jew and a committed Zionist. Zionism in Palestine became her single-minded purpose. For her, Zionism was justice. It was the antidote to the hatred she saw rising around her. It was an ideal which gave her Jewish identity a meaning and a purpose. She wrote about it in October of 1938. Zionism to me means that I now consciously and strongly feel I am a Jew and I am proud of it. I am immeasurably happy that I found this ideal. I've become a different person and it's a very good feeling. One needs something to believe in, something for which one can have wholehearted enthusiasm. One needs to feel that one's love has meaning, that one is needed in the world. Zionism fulfills all this for me. Convinced that Zionism offered the solution to the problems of European Jewry, persecution and assimilation, the two roots of our Zionist tree, Hannah made up her mind to go to Palestine to do the important work. When her mother asked what would become of her ambition to be a writer, Hannah told her that the question was no longer of importance. It paled in comparison to the burning problems of the day. Palestine, she insisted, didn't need more intellectuals like her. She was young, and the land of Israel needed workers who could physically build the country. Her dream was to gain admission to the agricultural school in Nahalal in the north. Her mother said that Hannes decided to avoid boys in order to prevent any heartbreak for when she would leave for Palestine. But to go to Palestine meant leaving her mother. Hannah's father had died when she was very young and her brother had gone off to study in France and her mother was not prepared to leave the rest of the extended family. It was a hard choice, and as much as she didn't want her young daughter heading off to the Middle East, Hannah's mother, Catherine Chenish, realized that she had to support her. Her mother recalled that Hannah once said that even if she had not happened to be born a Jew, she would still be on the side of the Jews, because one must help, by all possible means, a people who are being treated so unjustly now and who had been abused so miserably throughout history. And within a short time, Hannah secured admission to the agricultural school, and in 1939, boarded a ship to Palestine. She said goodbye to her mother. It would be five years before they saw each other again. On September 23, 1939, Hannah wrote a short diary entry. I am in Nahalal. I am home. Hannah Shenish wasn't the only young woman on this trajectory. Her life story parallels that of another, Kaviva Reich, a bit older, who was born in Slovakia in 1914. Unlike Hannah, her family was poor, but like Hannah, she got involved in left-wing socialist Zionist youth activities from a young age. She also developed a burning desire to emigrate to Palestine, also to work in agriculture as a chalutza, a pioneer building the Jewish homeland. This, too, became the core of her Jewish identity, 
She arrived in Palestine at around the same time as Hana in 1939 and bounced around a few kibbutzim until settling in the north. After a couple years working on a kibbutz farm, a friend persuaded her to get involved in the war effort, and Chaviva joined the Palmach. Remember that at this point, in the early 1940s, the Jewish community in Palestine, which we call the Yeshuv, had a range of responses to the war. The Irgun had suspended its operations against the British in order not to harm the war effort against Germany. Ben-Gurion had determined that the Yishuv would fight Hitler as if the white paper didn't exist, and fight the white paper as if Hitler didn't exist. And so while the Jews continued to provoke the British in Palestine through illegal immigration, they teamed up with the British army on a variety of operations. The British Special Operations Executive was the arm of the military devoted to clandestine warfare, like espionage and sabotage and supporting European resistance movements. So they needed people who knew Europe, who knew the individual countries, their languages, their geography and customs, who could move around invisibly as full natives and had family and community connections. In other words, exactly the sort of young, fit and courageous person who had just moved to Palestine from places like Hungary and Slovakia. The problem was that the British and the Yishuv had different ideas about how best to use these new Jewish immigrants. The British wanted them to go behind enemy lines, to rescue allied pilots who had been shot down and were lost, and to bring information and supplies to resistance movements. But the Zionist leaders wanted to use them as emissaries of the Yishuv, sent to rescue Jews and to organize local Jewish self-defense groups. By this point, the Yishuv was very, totally fully aware of the concentration camps and the death squads murdering hundreds of thousands of Jews. Fear and desperation were high, and the imperative was to save as many Jewish lives as possible, as quickly as possible. So eventually, the British and the Jewish agency, the Jewish agency is the Jewish government in Palestine, which was headed by David Ben-Gurion, they made a deal. The British would train a small number of volunteers. Their primary mission would be to rescue POWs and support the partisans, but after that, they would be free to run operations with the Jewish communities. Beginning in March of 1943, 110 Palmach volunteers underwent the special operations training. But in the end, only 29 men and three women were selected to carry out these incredibly dangerous missions. Two of the women were Chaviva Reich and Hannah Shenish. Shalom Like Haviva, Hannah also bounced around various agricultural projects in Palestine before she arrived at Kibbutz Stodiam in 1941. The Kibbutz then wasn't the postcard-perfect village that it is today. Aharon Meged, a famous Israeli writer and one of Hannah's fellow Stodiam Kibbutzniks, remembered that we were living in huts and tents, in a temporary settlement, and earned our living by doing hard physical labor at the Haifa port and through fishing. But Hannah loved the place. Along the beach one day in 1942, she wrote a short poem she called Walk to Caesarea. God, may there be no end to sea, to sand, water's splash, lightning's flash, the prayers of man.
There is not an Israeli in existence who doesn't know the words to this poem, which became the lyrics for Israel's most famous folk song, and was retitled, Eli, Eli, O Lord my God, a title from the Book of Psalms. That was the song you heard at the beginning of this episode, sung by Regina Spector. You'll hear it at campfires, at social gatherings, at celebrations, at national remembrances. It's as much the anthem of Israel as Hatikva. She was 21 years old when she wrote it, and had less than two years to live. In January 1943, Hannah wrote that she was suddenly struck with an idea that she couldn't let go of. She needed to go to Hungary. I feel that I must be there during these days in order to help organize youth emigration and also to get mother out. Although I'm quite aware how absurd this idea is, it still seems both feasible and necessary to me. So I'll get to work on it and carry it through. And she did. A month later, she joined the Palmach specifically to get selected for that special operations training. I see the hand of destiny just as I did at the time of my Aliyah. I wasn't the master of my fate then either. I was enthralled by one idea and it gave me no rest. Now again, I sense the excitement of something important and vital ahead. We'll see what the future brings. The future brought an intense training regiment with other volunteers selected to be parachuted behind enemy lines. It was the elite of the elite, 32 commandos receiving some of the best military training then available to carry out highly secretive rescue operations deep behind enemy lines in the heart of Europe. I don't know if Haviva Reich and Hannah Shenish ever met, but given that they were in the same training unit, they must have known each other, at least briefly. In the summer of 1944, Haviva was sent to Italy to prepare for a mission to infiltrate Slovakia, to wait there for opportunities to assist escaped POWs. But at the last minute, the British balked at sending a woman on the drop and only allowed the men to go forward. Determined to get into the mission for which she had trained anyway, Haviva joined up with an American unit that brought her to the meeting point in Slovakia. She beat her three male comrades there by a couple of days. In addition to carrying out their primary missions, the four volunteers assisted the Jews who had made it to a protected enclave momentarily safe from the advancing German forces. And there she took up the task of organizing the effort to feed thousands of starving and homeless Jews desperately trying to flee the Nazis. Meanwhile, Hannah Shenish and several men from the unit had been dropped into Yugoslavia to help the anti-Nazi forces there before moving into Hungary. The men had nothing but praise for her. For her fearlessness, her unquestioned leadership, her absolute determination to save Jewish lives, her military skills, but also her femininity as a young woman, 21 and 22 years of age. They also said that her stubbornness made her impossible to deal with. She could never be talked down. While in Yugoslavia, the Nazis invaded Hungary and began deporting the Jews there, making their intended mission too dangerous to carry out. But Hannah insisted on going anyway. We are the only ones who can help. We don't have the right to think of our own safety. We don't have the right to hesitate. 
Even if the chances of success are minuscule, we must go. Hanna and her fellow parachutist, Joel Palgi, made a plan to infiltrate Hungary separately and then to meet up again in Budapest. On May 2nd, 1944, just before she set off, she handed Joel a crumpled piece of paper on which she had just written a new poem. Blessed is the match consumed in kindling flame. Blessed is the flame that burns in the secret fastness of the heart. Blessed is the heart with strength to stop its beating for honor's sake. Blessed is the match consumed in kindling flame. Just after infiltrating into Hungary, Hanna was captured. Hanna was tortured mercilessly for the radio codes into her transmitter, but she refused to reveal them. So the Gestapo found her mother and brought her to the prison. Imagine the surprise. She hadn't seen Hanna in nearly five years and had no idea that her daughter had snuck into Hungary. The Germans threatened to torture and kill her mother right in front of her, but still, Hanna didn't break. They were kept in isolated cells, only allowed to see each other in passing once a day for a few minutes at a time, and eventually, her mother was released. Yoel Palgi too had been captured and ran into Hana on several occasions that summer and into the fall. He recalled that her spirits were high, that she argued with her jailers about Zionism, and that she performed small acts of resistance to encourage the other prisoners to stay strong. She famously drew a star of David in the dust on her window so that prisoners could see it from the courtyard. On October 28, 1944, Hanna appeared before a Hungarian court. Since she was technically a citizen of Hungary, the charge against her was treason. But many hoped that she would escape the death penalty. With the Soviets advancing on Hungary, the end of the war there seemed to be coming. It was thought that the judges were looking ahead to their own post-war judgments, and would not want to be on the record executing fighters who would later be seen as patriots. And indeed, on October 28th, they postponed rendering a verdict until the following week, November 4th. At the same time, back in Slovakia, Haviva Reich and three of her comrades were continuing to aid the Jewish community, smuggling children out to Palestine, organizing resistance groups, rescuing allied POWs. With the Nazis closing in, the parachutists sent as many Jews out as they could and escaped with 40 remaining Jews into the mountains to hide out. But Ukrainian SS troops found them and three of the four volunteers, including Haviva, were captured and sent to a nearby prison. On November 4th, Hanna Shenish's sentence was postponed yet again. But three days later, on the 7th, she was informed that a verdict had been reached and that she had the opportunity to beg for mercy. But she refused and refused to recognize the right of the Nazi-aligned Hungarian court to try her on those charges. She was told that she had one hour to prepare any farewell letters. She had at some point scrawled out a final poem in her cell. I could have been 23 next July. I gambled on what mattered most. The dice were cast. I lost. 
At 10 a.m. on November 7, 1944, Hanna was led out to the courtyard of the prison, tied to a post before a German firing squad, refused to be blindfolded, turned her eyes to the sky, and was shot dead. Her mother was informed later that day, and a few days later, she was given Hanna's last letter. Dearest mother, I don't know what to say. Only this, a million thanks and forgive me if you can. You know so well why words aren't necessary. With love forever, your daughter. Although Budapest's Jewish cemetery was no longer functioning, someone managed to smuggle Hannah's body into the martyr's section to ensure that she had a Jewish grave. Whoever did so never came forward and remains unknown to this day. At the end of 1943, Hannah had written a letter to her brother, in case she didn't return from her mission. There are events without which one's life becomes unimportant, a worthless toy. And there are times when one is commanded to do something, even at the price of one's life. Hannah Shenish exemplified the highest ideals of Zionism, of Israel, and of Judaism and then explains in part why she is the iconic Jewish hero of our time. For Zionism, it was her passion for Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, for reviving a distinctly Jewish society in the ancient homeland through the hard work of physical labor from which she took great joy. For the coming state of Israel, for which self-defense is amongst the highest principles, it was her sacrifice to save the lives of Jews under threat to carry out the most dangerous of missions on behalf of Jewish lives in peril. And for Judaism, it was her strong Jewish identity, connected to the saving of precious human life, which led her to a commitment to justice. Her nephew later wrote that she exemplifies the Jewish, indeed the universal virtue of taking personal responsibility for general suffering. She never hesitated to sacrifice her own needs and comforts to serve others. Hannah Shenish was inordinately brave, a young woman who felt a powerful internal sense of what was right and wrong, what ought to be done, and who was needed to take on the most difficult tasks, the highest risks, and to aim for the greatest rewards of justice. Many who knew her described her as almost mystical. But for her, it was maybe more simple than that. As she once wrote in a poem, a voice called, and I went. In Slovakia, 13 days after Hanna Shenish was executed, Haviva Reich and one of her comrades, Rafael Ries, were also shot, their bodies thrown into a ditch in the forest with several of the Jews whom they had led into the mountains. Of the 32 parachutists sent behind enemy lines in Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Yugoslavia, Italy, and Bulgaria, seven were executed. All of them had assisted resistance movements throughout Europe, rescued allied POWs and pilots, smuggled Jews out to Palestine, organized local Jewish resistance efforts, and participated in critical intelligence missions for the British. The 32 parachutists were the only rescue missions sent to Europe by the Yishuv.
And even in the chaos of post-war Europe, no one forgot about the seven parachutists who had sacrificed their lives. In the 1950s, all seven were brought to Israel and laid to rest in a special section of Mount Herzl, Israel's national cemetery where its soldiers, leaders, and heroes are buried. Haviva Reich and Hannah Shenish were placed right next to each other. Okay, so a huge thanks to my special guest star, Ariella Liefer, for reading for Hannah Shenish today. Now, in November of 1944, the same month that Hannah and Haviva met their fates, another battle was raging in Egypt and Palestine. Menachem Begin had already declared a resistance to the British mandate and was carrying out operations against government buildings and the police. But for the Lehi, the Irgun's terrorist splinter faction, that wasn't going nearly far enough. They decided to up the ante. Where the Lehi would take things would fracture the Yishuv so dramatically that the Jewish defense organizations turned on each other in what was almost a civil war. They called it the hunting season, and it almost cost them the Jewish state. That's next time. Lehitrot. See you later. Mm-hmm.